If there's one thing I've learned about growing our own food, it is that you cannot control the weather. And no one area is perfect for growing all things. However, there are many workarounds and things you can do to raise more of your own food, even with adverse weather, too cold of springs, too hot of summers, high winds, all the different things that can plague gardeners. There are workarounds to making whatever environment you have available to you right now work to be able to grow as much of your own food as possible. Specifically, we're going to be going over 13 tips to work with the land and weather you have to grow your own food on today's episode number 140 of the Pioneering Today podcast. Welcome. I am your host, Melissa K. Norris. And here on the Pioneering Today podcast, we teach families how to grow, preserve, and cook their own food using old-fashioned skill sets and wisdom to create a natural, self-sufficient home with or without the full-on homestead. As homesteaders, we are a different breed, y'all. We don't take the easy route. It would be a lot easier to go to the grocery store and just buy our food on the shelf, to not read ingredient labels, to not care about what goes into our food. That would be the easy route. But as homesteaders, we're a totally different breed. We kind of like the challenge of figuring out how to do things on our own, of being self-sufficient, of learning a new skill set, being able to grow even more than we did the year before. And quite honestly, not everybody gets us, but that's okay. Because as more and more people start to see the brokenness in our modern food system, our modern medicine, just the whole big old mess, more and more people are turning back to the old ways of growing it yourself, raising it yourself, making it yourself. And if you are listening to this podcast episode, that is totally you. And it's also why I created something really special. I've been working on it, you guys, since January, and I am so excited because it's almost, almost ready to launch. And it's going to be completely free. It's the very first 2018 Modern Homesteading Summit. And if you are listening to this series, this is the second episode in this special series where we are bringing on some of the presenters from the Homesteading Summit. And they are coming on the podcast to share even more of their information. And that includes today's guest. So you can't register yet, but let me just tell you, if you enjoyed last week's, which is episode number 139, and I know you're going to enjoy this week's episode number 140, this is just a little itty bitty taste of what you're going to get in the Homesteading Summit. I cannot wait. So I'm totally teasing. You can't even sign up yet, but I'm putting it on your radar. You're going to want to make sure that you keep tuning in. Get on my email list if you're not. Make sure you're opening those emails because you are going to want to make sure that you get registered and that you save your seat when it actually becomes available. Okay, I will quit teasing you about it for now and we will shoot straight over to today's interview. 
And as always, to go and find any of the past episodes. And with every single episode, we've got the full blog post for you on the blog, links, written out, all of that great stuff. You can find that for today's episode at melissaknorris.com slash 140 or 140, because today is episode number 140. Today's episode, I am really excited for our guest. Not only do I actually go to her website quite often to look at things, but I love her common sense approach, which probably just gave it away to some of you who are already familiar, but it is with Lori Neverman from Common Sense Home. So Lori, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Hey, Melissa. Great to be here, and thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, and Lori and I, just to give you guys a little bit of let you in, so to speak, we have been communicating via email, then we were talking right before we started recording, and I think this is going to be a great topic and podcast, because when you grow your own food, and it's something that you've been doing for years and years and years, there's always new things that happen and new struggles or new things that you're going to be encountering when you're growing, no matter if you've got years and years of experience or you're just kind of starting out. We all have a learning curve. That's what Laura and I are going to be talking about today because sometimes you can feel a little bit discouraged when you're first starting out or if all of a sudden the weather is not cooperating. So we're going to talk about some of the things that have changed for us over the recent years, mainly incremental weather, but some other things and how we are combating them so that you can take that information and apply it to growing your own crops as well. I'm excited to dive into this. For a little bit of background, Lori, can you let anybody who doesn't know isn't familiar with you, the area of the country that you're in. And at the time of this recording, we are in springtime. It's the tail end of April. And so when you're putting in your regular summer vegetable garden, that type of thing, what your gardening area and zone is like. In Northeast Wisconsin, about 30 minutes from Green Bay, if anybody knows where that is. I think that's the most commonly associated thing with Wisconsin for the rest of the country with the Green Bay Packers. We are gardening zone officially, borderline between four and five. But if you look at the older hardiness maps, it is it was solidly zone four. Because we're out in the country, it's more exposed and we get a lot of wind, which plays a big impact on our garden. Typically, if the year is, the weather is cooperative, I can usually get in my crops around the end of May. Sometimes in a good year, we might be able to sneak in the Warm the heat loving crops say mid May. Some people are as bold as to try it near Mother's Day. I don't normally do that because I don't feel that lucky. I've seen snow on May 31st far too often. Sometimes we have to stretch it into June, and this year I'm not quite sure what's going to happen because just on April 14th and 15th, we had a blizzard in the area that dumped nearly two feet of snow in Green Bay and a little bit less than that near us, but we've still got snow piles all over the place. It's just crazy. I, I look out, the, the days are long, the sun is shining, but there's snow everywhere. So it's very weird gardening year. Do you have any early spring crops or some cooler crops that are in already? Because with that amount of snow, I mean, they would just be totally covered. Or had you really put anything out yet? The weather was not really great even before the blizzard. We still had frozen ground, and so I did not attempt to put anything out. 
even the, the nights where we're seeing nights with lows in the single digits. So even the greenhouse wasn't safe with those temperatures because we can get maybe down in the lower 20s and things will be okay because the greenhouse, one of them is attached to the house and the other one has multi-wall polycarbonate. So it offers a little bit more frost protection. But mm-hmm. once you get in the single digits, no, everything's pretty much toast at that point. So Right now, I have the attached greenhouse crammed full of seedlings that are waiting for garden space, but the ground is still frozen. So I don't know when I'm going to be able to get stuff in. The the big greenhouse, the boys and I are going to work that up, and I'm hoping that we can start planting things out there this week because our nighttime temps have now been closer to freezing. So fingers crossed we should be safe. That's really interesting, the difference in the zones. And for any listeners who are really new or, or maybe you're not really familiar with what we're referring to, our garden zones. But your gardening zones, at least in the United States, are going to let you know approximately when in the springtime your last average frost date is and when your soil starts to warm up enough to put in those warm weather crops. In the fall, your first average frost date, because that's usually signals the end of the summer or the warm weather gardening season, and then pretty much everything that you plant in and around in your garden, planting a spring garden, summer garden, fall crops, those kind of all revolve around those frost dates in your gardening zone. But it's really interesting, and I will link in today's show notes in the episode for you guys, some links where we go into greater depth on this on some past episodes and give you some more information if you don't know that for yourself. But I find it really interesting because we are, like as Lori said, kind of with the newer maps, we're considered, I'm in the Pacific Northwest, but we're up in the foothills of Washington State. And so I'm considered gardening zone eight, but really we are seven B. And what's so interesting, Lori, is because you're saying that you can get a dusting of snow until the end of May, but you're usually able in May to put out your warm weather crops. And so for us, because we're quite a few gardening zones different than you, but for our warm weather crops, normally our soil isn't heated up to be warm enough to put everything in. Usually we plant most of the things around Memorial Day weekend of our warm, you know, tomatoes, peppers, all your direct so crops. So that's really interesting, even though we're three gardening zones apart, that we kind of have a very similar planting time. And that's just getting to know your area and kind of knowing your micro zones for where exactly you're at. And I know you mentioned one of the things that you guys struggle with is wind. Oh, yeah, it's nasty. And I didn't really have any idea about this because we lived nearby. Then we moved out here. We're on a geological formation called the Niagara Escarpment, which is this raised ridge uh, close to Lake Michigan that sort of runs parallel to Lake Michigan. And if you drive up this area, you'll notice there's a lot of wind farms in the area. Turns out we moved into some of the windiest spots in Wisconsin. So, yeah, yeah, us and the wind turbines get blasted on a regular basis, which, you know, definitely makes an impact on your garden, sometimes a big impact in the terms of planting plants. So. Yeah, so I do have some questions regarding the wind because I do have some readers who have had issues with the wind. And it's also, you just got to find ways to deal with the weather and the landscape and whatever it is you have and to still push through and grow your crops. So for somebody who does have a really windy area, do you have any tips on some things that you guys have done to kind of help combat that or to give the plants the best advantage that you can? 
what the big thing is, well, there's a couple of different things. When you're working with seedlings, you know, if you've got your transplant that you're putting out, make sure to, if at all possible, transplant them on a day that is a little less windy. Windy. I mean, it, it does happen. You can watch. So if that, if your schedule allows that, and then for some of the more tender crops, I'll use modified windbreaks that I got from my husband's great uncle when he was remodeling, and I, I'll put those blocking the prevailing winds either to the west or the north. So I'll put these at ground level, set them down, so that when my seedlings go out, they can have a little sheltered area to move into. I'll use cold frames to block the wind. Sometimes the cold frames will be in the garden, and just the frames will sit there. I'll take the covers off just to provide a wind block. Another thing is old, like uh, milk jugs or something like that, vinegar jugs. I'll use those as a modified wall of water, just protect and block that wind. When the plants get larger at the other end, any trellises that we use in the garden are deep and they're sturdy. I cannot use the typical box store little flimsy trellises. They would be flat. I've seen them at the neighbors. Like, I said, oh, they had those little wire trellises, and now their tomatoes are flat. That is not good. And another thing, if your plants do get flattened, if we get a particularly bad storm or high winds just otherwise, it's surprising what plants can recover from. So I've had heavy rains and high wind that nearly flattened my corn crop. And if I get out there within 24 hours, pull the plants upright, stomp the roots back into the ground, they will usually tend to recover and start growing upright again. So you can improvise and do things to offer protection at all stages of the growth cycle. Those are some great tips. And you're right. It, I've always been amazed sometimes when I think a plant is dead or it's not going to come back and you just kind of leave it there for a little bit. Oftentimes I'm pleasantly surprised to see what happens. And of course, there's, there's sometimes there's casualties as well. But those are really, really great tips. I am really glad for the Pacific Northwest, those high winds aren't typically something that we have to deal with. You get rain though, don't you? We do. Are you in the, the heavy rain area? We do. And that can definitely be a big issue for us. And it's mainly because, well, one, we have really good draining soil. So if you obviously, if you have an area that's getting a ton of rain and a ton of water, you need it to be well draining. Otherwise, it's just going to be a swamp pit. You're going to drown everything. But the other issue is when we do get a lot of a rain, of course, your temperatures are cooler. So those heat loving plants can kind of struggle. You know, they're not going to thrive and produce as much because they're on the chillier side. But the main thing is fungus, you know, so blossom and rot, you know, a lot of the different fungals just because it's so damp and wet all the time. But what has been really interesting, and Lori and I were talking about this right before we started to hit record. In fact, I said, hey, let's wait and talk about this on the podcast because I think the listeners will really benefit from this. But we've both noticed a shift in the weather, particularly with our gardening seasons, probably like the past three or four years. And we've both had to kind of modify around that. Now, typically here in the Pacific Northwest, like I said, we do have a lot of rain. It's cooler, very damp. And then usually we have like four weeks in August where that's like all of our sunshine comes in and it's, and it's warm. So for me to be able to really successfully grow peppers and tomatoes where I'm not dealing with blight, we actually put up a, I call it an off-grid greenhouse, but it's more a high tunnel because my tomatoes are planted 
down deep into the ground. I don't heat it. it it's just with, we used an old carport frame, but it's covered with the plastic. And that has been the only way that I have been able to successfully grow tomatoes without having any issues with blight or any fungal disease. And so you and I both, you really have to just work with what nature has given you. And sometimes that changes. So I know for you, Laurie, it's really been a lot cooler, you were saying, even throughout the rest, the regular growing season, and you guys just had this huge blizzard come through. So has it been about, I think you said like the last three or four years, this has kind of been a pattern you've seen coming through? Yeah, it seems like it. And I, I really, this is one of these things I need to work on. I should keep better garden notes, but I do have about 40,000 pictures on my hard drive that I could sort through and find evidence of what happened the past few years. It's been, we'll, we'll start getting spring and then it'll just not be very warm. Last year, for instance, we had torrential rains all of June that wiped out most of the neighborhood strawberry farmers because we have a couple of U-Pick place. There's one organic U-Pick about 12 minutes from us that it, it's just a beautiful place, but they have clay soil. You know, that's what you were talking about just a minute ago. And it wiped out their strawberry crop. They had, they were open for one, picking one afternoon. That was it. The other place that we typically go to, again, heavy clay soil, they were open for two days. And that was for the whole strawberry season for those two places. And I know that had to hit their hot pocketbooks hard, but there was nothing that they could do. Yeah. And the Door County cherry crop, we live just south of Door County, and Door County cherries are known worldwide. And they have had their cherry crops, and they also have a lot of apples. Certain areas of the cherry crops were wiped out because of late frost took out the blossoms. And they've been growing cherries there for over 100 years, and normally it works just fine, but not these last couple of years. And I know some farms have had to close their doors because the financial losses have just mounted too high. And, you know, you think that these farms have been in the family for decades, typically, and they just got to shut down because they, they've taken too many losses. And it, it's hard, you know, and as, a, as a home gardener, typically you aim to produce a lot of your own food, especially as you get more into it, but you have backup. There's always a grocery store. When you're farming and you get hit with this wacky weather and you've got a whole field, you can't use some of the options that are available for us home gardeners like your carport modified greenhouse. Right. So I definitely feel for the farmers, but I'm glad that more people are taking interest in providing for themselves. Yeah, no, you're right. When it when it's a big commercial farm like that, we do definitely have an advantage when you're a small-scale home gardener because there are more workarounds available to us completely agree but I'm like you you know you hate to see anybody because it sometimes it doesn't matter how much hard work you've put in you know we are at the mercy of mother nature and she doesn't always work with us how we would like but I also like that on the small scale we're kind of able to find ways around that or to make it work in some years you're going to have certain crops like if a late frost comes and it takes out all of the apple blossoms on your apple tree well you know, that unfortunately is just, it's just a done deal. I know small scale, you know, they'll have some of those bigger orchards where that happens. Which that was kind of contradictory statement, but some of them, you know, I read where they have used this smudge pots where they know that the blossoms are out. And so they'll burn fires in these pots beneath the trees. If a late frost is coming, 
but if it's a huge snowstorm that's going to be lasting, you know, days upon end, that's not really probably going to be a possibility. But small farm type deal, you may be able to do that. But what are some of the things, because I know this colder weather has really affected your summer vegetable garden growing and capability to produce the crops. And I know you guys are very similar to us. We try to raise and preserve as much of our own food as possible. So with those lower crop yields, do you have a bit of a strategy, because this has been happening for you for the past couple of years, that you guys have implemented or kind of ways that you're trying to work around it or work with it? Yeah, we initially started with just a very small attached greenhouse right off the southeast corner of our home. And then in 2015, we added a detached 10 by 20 multi-wall polycarbonate greenhouse. And then in 2016, 2017, we built an attached garden shed combination coop off the, the north side of that greenhouse. So that provides an actual an additional block from the north winds to the greenhouse. So it's sheltered against that south side of the greenhouse. This year, we're planning to get another greenhouse. We've got one on order from Harvest Right. I told them, hold off on shipping because I cannot put it in the ground because the ground is still frozen. So, um, I'm going to be trying out one of their dome greenhouses. And these are kind of cool because they've got the stretch membrane that goes over the top and they lock together like tinker toys and then they just have the anchors. So potentially we could move that around the grounds if we decide we don't want to keep it where we initially are putting it. Mm-hmm. And it go up a lot faster than the multi-wall polycarbonate kit, which is your typical hard frame, the panels that look sort of like corrugated cardboard except for translucent. Right. That one was complete pain in the backside to put up and the foundation was a lot of fun for me because I did want to be able to plant the ground. I didn't want to have it slab on the default. So we had a really interesting time building a funky foundation for them. I do have a post on that on the site. And, you know, if you go use the search box on the site and just type in greenhouse foundation, it'll take you to the post. But we ended up building sort of an inverted box frame mounted into posts that were sunk below the frost line or it just the box that worked out and it has held up now for several seasons. So fingers crossed that it will continue to stay stable. And so we're going to have greenhouse number three this season. We're also tossing around the idea of trying to mount a bigger hoop house over the top of the existing greenhouse to kind of push that season even a little bit farther so we'd have a greenhouse within a greenhouse so the big hoop house would give you know x amount of time but then the the sheltered greenhouse within that would maybe give another month or two on the far end and i don't know the next thing that's up for sure is the harvest rate but we're still kind of tossing around the hoop house idea because it is so frustrating to look out your garden and just see everything struggling. And that's the way, um, and I shouldn't say everything, everything that needs heat. Because the cabbages and the broccoli did awesome last year. <laughs> I guess, oh, we don't care. But the tomatoes, and I saw this as I was driving through the area too, not just in our garden. As you mentioned, the, the fungal diseases, mm-hmm. cold weather and wet, fungus was everywhere. I'm pretty sure, oh gosh, I think it was Victoria leaf spot is really common here. At least I suspect that's what it is. The plants will get some sort of fungal something 
spreading from the ground up and you drive through the people and you can see if people have trellis there, sometimes the upper leaves will still be intact and producing tomatoes. If folks don't trellis and they have them sprawling on the ground, everything will get eaten up by the fungus. So that, that's another good tip if you deal with fungal diseases. Trellises can be a lifesaver or at least a crop saver because you'll still be able to salvage at least part of the plant and keep it producing. And so, yeah, I'm still not 100% sure which direction we're going to go with that, but we definitely know more greenhouse space is in the works. Yeah, you know, I completely agree with you, too, on the trellising thing. I've noticed that even with my green beans, trying a bush bean versus a pole bean, anytime that you go vertical, you know, that airflow, it really does help. You know, I tie my tomatoes up because those little those little wire cages that you get when you start to get because I, I do the majority of the tomatoes that we plant is a San Marzano or a paste tomato. There's different varieties of paste tomatoes, but they're producing, which is the reason that I use them. Right. They're very prolific and they're producing a lot of fruit and it's heavy fruit at once. And when they start to get really big, those little wire tomato cages just they can't support them. So we do a trellis mm-hmm. system where I actually just tie them. I, you know, I tie them on up. We've got some support beams and then we'll put some poles in and some wires within the greenhouse that I can trellis them up. And even, you know, and that helps. And there they're covered. So it's not so much dealing with fungal, but it just really helps them. And in case there were to be, you know, any disease that eked its way in there. And you bring up a good point about having greenhouses or high tunnels that you can move. Now, we have really been crossing our fingers because I haven't had any signs of disease within the little greenhouse that we've got that we put our tomato plants in. And I can get about 20 tomato plants and about 10 peppers in there. So it's a decent size. But we have been able to keep it in the same spot. I haven't been doing crop rotation. Now, normally with any of my nightshade plants, I would never plant them in the same soil ever again, you know, in the same spot, I should say, without doing proper crop rotation. But I have gotten away with that. But it is really nice because we can unanchor this greenhouse that we put up and we can move it if we need to. I have just been really crossing my fingers and I haven't had to, I've gotten away with it, but I know that could change and we can move it or put up another one that you can move. I do have a question though, especially with the greenhouses and the high tunnels, because currently my, the one that we have, I'm not heating. I do have a thermometer out there because I'm monitoring the temperatures right now because I'm trying to get my tomatoes out of my living room under the grow light in the soil as soon as possible, but I'm still hitting without heating it. My nighttime temperatures this last night actually got down to 31 in there, which is just too cold to put those tomato plants out there. So do you heat any of your greenhouses or, or not? Are these heated or not heated or do you kind of do a combination? Yeah, we haven't yet, but if this keeps up, it's definitely something we're considering, especially if we did opt for the the nested greenhouse or trying to make that one greenhouse definitely more warm plant friendly or heat loving plant friendly. So that's not something we've done yet, but maybe I've looked at a few options and maybe because it's just, it's, it's another safety measure because you can be going along, going along, going along, and you're fine. And then all it takes is one night and your crop can be toast. If you, you know, if you've got stuff planted in the ground of the greenhouse, it's not like you can bring it inside. So it, it would, it would give me peace of mind to have that option, but it's not installed yet. 
Yeah. So what have you been finding temperature wise, mainly because I'm, I've been very closely monitoring mine to try and get things in the ground faster. What do you notice? Do you, I'm assuming you record temperatures or keep an eye on the temperatures in there, but say, cause you said it extend, you know, we're looking at extending our growing season for those warm weather plants. So say in your greenhouse, it's not heated. If it gets down to 20 degrees outside Fahrenheit, what would be the kind of the average or how much warmer does it stay in there without heat at this point? Yeah, I think I, I actually haven't set up and I should, I used to have something set up and then it, it um, I think got stepped on or something fell on it. And so there goes my monitoring <laughs> thermometer, but things happen and I haven't replaced it yet. But I, I think typically if it were, we were seeing temps in the low twenties, we'd probably be seeing temps in the upper 20s in the greenhouse. So it still would be shy of where we'd need to be to provide frost protection. Okay. So probably looking at like a, a five to seven degree increase yeah. in warmth from what your outside nighttime temperature is. So and yeah, that, that, that's fair. Okay. You know, and, and like you said, if, if you're hovering at 32 degrees overnight or just a really light frost, that would provide just enough protection to extend it either, you know, the beginning of the season, which is now when we're recording this or at the far end. So very, very fascinating. I get, I get so excited talking about this and finding out what other people are doing. And I'm, yeah, I think we may look into getting some larger hoop type structures to be able to put on some of the different crops just to extend it at that more so at the far end of the season, because that's when sometimes my harvest gets cut short by those sneaky frosts that come in later in the year around September. So I love that idea of just going and covering them right when they are in the ground, just to eke that out a little bit longer. Typically you're seeing, well, like for us, our harvest just gets rolling. And if you get that early frost and a lot of times it'll be just like one night, two nights. So if you can get them through that, you might have a few more weeks for things to ripen. And so I hate to pull things in too early. If you're going to have that Indian summer and, you know, get that extra ripening time last year in the greenhouse, we had a weird fall. It did stay warm, relatively warm into the fall. My garden was long gone because we had our hard enough frost out in the garden, but the greenhouse protected tomatoes enough that I was still picking tomatoes from the greenhouse in November. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So it was, it was warm enough. I was opening up between the shed and the greenhouse when it was nice to circulate the air through there and and yeah, it was pretty amazing. There was frost damage, say, on the outside edges, but we had a lot of plant matter, too. The tomatoes, the way I planted them, and I was trying some different fertilization techniques and different things, and it turned into a jungle in there. Basically, you'd walk through the center of the greenhouse, and there was vegetation growing up and around, completely encircling the entire greenhouse. They were just huge. So I was losing some foliage and some tomatoes up they were pressing against the outside window mm-hmm. but then the inner sections were back and producing oh that's fascinating so now i have to ask of course well what was the new fertilization technique that you used i've got i got i can't give all that away because i've got a presentation coming up at margie wildcast summit and where i'm going to be talking about the weird tomato stuff that we did but, okay. but i did play the music every day which they really seem to like, and I got some plant music specifically for 
find when you find things online, they they do like well, I talk about the different types of music they like, but what they found through testing is that plants respond to commonly, you know, like the morning bird song, mm-hmm. the dawn song of birds. They like those tonal qualities. And when the birds start singing in the morning, the tomatoes will open up their stomata, their leaf opening, uh-huh. and they will drink in that morning dew. So if you have a sound that mimics the morning bird song, the dawn song, and then you combine that with appropriate foliar fertilizers, then it dramatically can increase your harvest. And sometimes they've even done it just with the music, not with the fertilizers too, and had really great results. So that was, I read about that. I think that was in the lost language of plants. That was, that was another really interesting book. And yeah, they were even playing it say out in wheat fields and getting a 55% increase in production in, in comparison to the control field just from playing the right type of music at the right time that for is the right fast. amount of time. That's fascinating. Oh my God. Now I got to go. I got to go study this now. I had not heard that. That's just fascinating. So now I'm like, Ooh, I got to go and check that out. So, and guys, no worries. If you're listening to this, we'll have links to the articles on her site, everything that we're talking about, there will be links so that you can check them out further. I love that. I am so going to go check that out. I'm totally geeking out at the moment. So pardon me for that, but that's so cool. But I, I find it really interesting. You're dealing with cooler where typically you have been warmer in your growing season. And here in the Pacific Northwest, our summers have actually been the opposite. For the past three summers in a row, we've had the most sunny days. We've actually had record droughts, like two two summers in a row. And so I still am putting my tomatoes into the greenhouse because they've been growing just fine in there. I just open up all the sides when it's really hot out, you know, during the day and, and then at night. And though that time period, I don't even lower them. I do more the beginning and the tail end of the season. And so it's been interesting here because I've had to put in soaker hoses and just do normally watering is not something that I really need to worry about. And then even typically here, I can grow a lot more of those more cool weather crops all summer long and not have an issue. But now this year, especially just because it's been those three years in a row. So I'm anticipating it will be the continued weather pattern. I'm going to be making sure I'm a little bit more strategic and planting things like, you know, my lettuce and my spinach behind some of those larger trellis crops to provide some shade for them. So it's a little bit cooler whereas that's never been an issue for us before. So it's very interesting. We're kind of getting your heat, it seems, and y'all are getting our more cold conditions. So it's very interesting to get to talk and to, you know, see what's going on in other parts of the country for other gardeners and how they're combating it. You know, you should, they should really have something like all the stuff on the news and there's, there's nothing about this kind of thing. So unless you're talking to people who live in other parts of the country, there's very little about what's happening with the weather. I mean, people always talk about the weather where you are, but it, yeah, it's cool definitely to talk about and find out what's happening because everybody seems to be dealing with extremes lately and it all makes it really tough to adjust, but it's different extremes depending on where you are in the country. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. And actually it's, it's really nice to be able to talk to someone who's having the opposite extreme of you because you can glean tips from what their normal planting area time would be like and to kind of swap swap strategies and swap things that have worked for them to try to combat it. So 
Yeah, this has been so great. Thank you so much for coming on. You always have a wealth of information. I always enjoy getting to read. I love the way that you think about things because it makes me think about things and the way that you observe things. So thank you so much for that and for just all the work that you put into your site and the articles that you put out and for sharing with the rest of us. You're very, very welcome. So cool that I can make a living doing what I love. And I know you've said that on your site before, that it's just great to be able to help people and share what means the most to you. It's great working with you and people like you and you know helping people to help themselves. Yes. Amen. I couldn't agree more. So thank you, Lori, so much for coming on. And I can't wait for your presentation within the Modern Homesteading Summit. We'll have links for everybody. You are definitely going to want to check it out. Like I said, Lori is a wealth of information. She goes into really great detail within her presentation that you guys are going to love. Thanks so much for coming on today. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Lori was a wealth of information. So no matter what type of weather you've got coming at you this year, you have got some valuable tips there that you can use to make sure you're still able to grow some of your own food. So that brings us to the portion of the podcast where we have our verse of the week. And this week we are in Numbers chapter 18, verse 20. And this is the Amplified Translation of the Bible. And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in the land of the Israelites, neither shall you have any part among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the Israelites. First glance, or first listen, I should say, that verse almost seems a little bit harsh. And oftentimes that's the way we view the world. You know, we don't have necessarily what we want or we feel we're being shut out or left out of certain things. But when we see it through the lens of God's love and grace and mercy and his truth, we see that what he has given us and the plan that he has for us is so much better. It's so richer if we'll just let go of the other part. So what I took from this and what I'm remembering and what I hope you will remember as well is that the Lord is our portion. He is our inheritance and him alone. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. And I can't wait to be back with you here next week. We've got another really fun guest, and we will be getting into the homestead kitchen. Talk then.